Thank you, Pastor Rob and Pastor Jill. And good morning to all of you. Good morning. It's really, really lovely to see you here today as we continue on with our summer sermon series on the parables of Jesus. A year ago, Ryan and I bought our first house, and now a year later, we are finally getting around to fixing it up. And being the very serious grown-up that I am, I have put a lot of thought into what color to paint our walls, and so far I feel that I have chosen some sensible, neutral, moderate, I'd say understated even, (laughs) colors to decorate our space. We haven't done many of our rooms yet, but I have a plan that I've been puttering away at little bit by little bit. And in case you were wondering, Ryan has almost no opinions about what color our house should be, which is really great because I have a whole bunch of them. But I looked around our house recently and I noticed how much it looks like I specifically live there, like my clothes kind of match our house today. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if it looked just a little bit like maybe Ryan lives here too? So I'll be working on our spare room and our office space next. And I asked him if he could pick out some colors for me that he would like to have in there. For reference, here are all of the colors that are in my house currently. You know, they're soothing, they're soft, they're happy, they're giving Barbie's dream home just a little bit, but we're not mad about it. And then here is the direct quote from my husband. I think it would be cool if we paint the walls black and the ceiling black and the floor black. and then also get black furniture so that you can't tell where anything is. (laughs) So anyway, we're gonna be painting it a really pretty pastel green (laughs) because my husband is nice to me and I have strong opinions about the right way of doing things. And while I like to remind him that it's little quirks like this that persuaded him to marry me in the first place, the parable we're gonna be reading today might challenge me in that just a little bit. You can find it in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And all three of these accounts place this parable pretty early on in Jesus' ministry, kind of right after he has called his group of disciples. And he's been slowly making his way around Galilee and Judea, healing the sick and forgiving sins and teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's begun to gather the attention of quite a few people, the leaders of the synagogues, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the disciples of John the Baptist, all of these people who have devoted their time and attention to understanding God's kingdom and who often fundamentally disagreed with each other about what that kingdom should look like. But in Jesus, all of these groups, even John's disciples, finally found some common ground because all of them could agree that Jesus was doing it wrong. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' public ministry really only starts in chapter 4. So just in the two chapters that lead up to our parable today, he claimed to be the fulfillment of Scripture and was chased out of Nazareth. He broke the Sabbath. He associated himself with people who were spiritually and physically unclean, with the demon-possessed, with the lepers, with the sinners. He called fishermen and tax collectors to be his closest disciples, and then he feasted with them at their tables instead of fasting to show his righteousness and to plead for the righteousness of the world. And it's easy, I think, for us to look at this through our lens today and just kind of dismiss their concerns by saying that the religious leaders of Jesus' time should really just have lightened up a little bit. 
Would it really be so bad if one measly room in your house looked like you stepped into a limitless void of darkness? But really, yeah, it would be so bad. Because <laughs> it's not just about the room. It's about the whole plan. And it wasn't just about keeping Sabbath. It was about a life of holiness. And it wasn't just about fasting. It was about ushering in the kingdom of God. They're over here trying to bring about an age of righteousness while Jesus and his disciples are out partying with tax collectors. And so finally, someone just comes out and says it. Say, Jesus, you are doing this wrong. And this is where we're going to pick up reading our parable this morning, and we're going to read it from the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 5, verses 33 to 38 say this. They, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to match the old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And I think our temptation, or at least my temptation, is to make this little string of parables a really easy one to reckon with. Jesus has arrived. The time of waiting for the Messiah is over, and the time of celebration has begun. And that means it's time to put away the old way of doing things and to put on new ones instead. It's time to put away the old wineskins and create new ones that will hold the new wine. The old systems and structures aren't going to do it. It's time for something new. And this is true, and it's good, and it's exciting even to know that we're invited to participate in this new thing that Jesus is doing. And we could almost get away with just leaving it here and then going home and downloading TikTok and feeling really good about ourselves for keeping current, except for this last little line that is recorded for us only in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 5, verse 39 says, But no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Matthew and Mark give us a much easier time, and they leave this part out, but Luke preserves Jesus saying what everyone is thinking, which is that the problem with new wine is that it doesn't actually taste very good. People don't like it very much. Which is kind of funny, because I thought the new wine tasted great when I could read it as talking about you, or talking about staying relevant, or talking about prioritizing the things that matter the most. I can get on board with all of those things. But when I begin to suspect that, as he so often does, Jesus is saying something about the direction of my heart and the lordship of my life, then it suddenly becomes a little more difficult to swallow. Luke's account is my favorite for this reason. He's not going to let us take the easy way out. So let's look at it again, listening this time not to what Jesus has to say about our neighbor or our coworker or our world, but about us. Jesus told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, 
and the patch from the new will not match the old. If I'm going to be really honest, then I often want what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted. They built their lives around these pillars of righteousness and obedience and purity and study, all of these things which sound good because they are good. And what they really wanted was for the Messiah to come and take that foundation that they had built and just sort of mend it a little bit, just kind of patch it up and polish it off, make it whole and complete, bring all of their plans to fruition without messing with any of the structural integrity. And then similarly, I have this little life that I've built out of the things that I value. I value my family, and I value my friendships, and I value my church, and I have plans and hopes for my life and for my future, and for my family and for my ministry. And these things sound good because these things are good. They are gifts of God to me. But I think sometimes when we think about giving our lives over to Jesus, we kind of imagine it in this same way, that I offer him my life that is built on this foundation of good things, and then he just kind of polishes it up for me. He scrubs out the cobwebs, he picks out any problems, he digs out those patterns of sin and he leads me to repentance, and then after he's patched it all up, he gives it back to me. Still recognizable, just better. The same good things that I have come to value now made complete. But Jesus says that this isn't actually how it works. Nobody buys a whole new garment just so that they can cut a piece off to patch up an old one. Because first of all, that wouldn't work anyway. The new cloth would shrink and it would tear away from the old cloth and then the hole would be worse than it was when it started. But even worse than that, you'll have cut up the new garment too. You'll have ruined that one as well, and then you won't have either anymore. Instead, what you do is you just wear the new garment. You throw out the old, and you wear the new. And that's how it works, says Jesus. He didn't come to just patch us up. He came to make us into something that is entirely new. And so we give our lives to God, and we say, do whatever you want with this. I don't want it back again. And this is actually really scary. And we see in the next parable that we read that Jesus knows that this is really scary. He says, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. But no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Again, Jesus tells us that we can't just have some of each. It can't be God's kingdom, the new wine, done my way in old wineskins. The old wineskins have already stretched to accommodate all that they can, and so as the new wine ferments, the wineskins will burst, and both the wine and the wineskins will be lost. If we want God's kingdom, it has to be God's way. And we see this modeled for us, actually, just before Jesus tells these parables in Luke chapter 5 when he calls his disciples. He has a fisherman named Simon, we know him as Peter, take him out into the water on his boat, and he told him that he'd been fishing all wrong. And to be clear here, Jesus was a carpenter, 
And Simon had been fishing his whole life, and more to the point, had been fishing all night, and he didn't catch anything. But Simon listened anyway. He cast out his nets again in the place where Jesus told him to cast his nets. And he caught so many fish that he had to call James and John to come and help him. So Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And they, Simon, James, and John, pulled their boats up onto shore, left everything, and followed Jesus. And then the same thing happens just a few verses down when Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, who we know as Matthew. Levi got up, he left everything, and he followed Jesus in verse 28. But notice that they don't just leave the bad stuff. Levi doesn't give up his corrupt tax-collecting business where he makes his living by ripping off the poor, while Simon, James, and John go back to the honest work of fishing, having been made successful now by Jesus. They all leave everything, the good and the bad, to have Jesus instead. And as the disciples will discover, this is a high-stakes exchange. Because I want to trust Jesus with my life, but what happens when his good plan and my good plan don't match? What if I ask and he says no? What if I say to him that I will lay down my life for him the same way that he laid his down for me and he takes me seriously? What if the path that he calls me to doesn't include all of the good things that I want? How do I reconcile the goodness of God with infertility or loneliness or divorce or estranged relationships or conflict that I can't control or the loss of someone I love or mental or physical illness? What do I do if I discover that the old wine tasted better? I take comfort, friends, in the knowledge that Jesus isn't surprised by this. He's never shocked or offended by my grief or by yours. He isn't angry at our questions. He knows that we're going to have them, just like he knew that his first disciples would. Remember the beginning of our passage when the teachers of the law and the Pharisees asked Jesus why it was that Jesus' disciples were out there having a big party when they should be fasting and praying for God to act. Jesus answered them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. Jesus says, of course they're rejoicing. I'm here with them. The kingdom of God is breaking through now. Life is here now. But the time will come, the time of mourning, the time of disillusionment the time when they can't see Jesus or understand what he's doing. And in those days, their faith will look different. They will fast and they will mourn. They'll be bewildered, even disillusioned. And we actually get to read about some of the disciples in that time, actually, right at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24. Two of Jesus' disciples, one named Cleopas and one whose name we don't know, are walking from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. They had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, but now Jesus has died. and They don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't know where they're supposed to go. So they're packing it up and they're heading home. 
And as they walk, it's quite a long walk to Emmaus, by the way, about seven miles, Jesus shows up, although they don't recognize him. And they're talking together about all of the things that had happened when Jesus joins them. And he asked them in verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood, stood still, their faces downcast. And then one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? What things, Jesus asked. I just love that. What things? Because of course Jesus knows what things, because Jesus just lived what things. But he just says, what things? Tell me all about it. Tell me everything. And in this season of bewilderment and disillusionment and grief, Jesus invites them to name and to talk about their disappointments. What things are heavy? What things are hurting? And so they do. They spill their guts to this man who they still think is a stranger, and they tell him all the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet and a teacher, powerful in word and in deed, and who died. And this is the part that I love, because they say Jesus was crucified, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. They had hoped so deeply in something that, as far as they knew in that moment, had not happened. And they named this huge disappointment to this stranger on the road. They're discouraged to the point that they're packing it up and they're leaving it all behind. The other disciples all stayed in Jerusalem and they gathered together, but these two are heading back to Emmaus, thinking that they've put their hope in the wrong place and that the old wine really was better after all. But then Jesus gives them two invitations, one that's a little blunt, but the other one just so gentle. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Isn't it possible, says Jesus, that what you thought you understood isn't really the way that God works? that your plan for how God should do things wasn't the same as how God was doing things. He invites them to take a new look at their wineskins, to consider what God might be doing, to consider that he might be bigger than they thought he was, and that following him might not be as simple as they thought it would be, to see how God is still working in their grief and their confusion and their disillusionment. And this is not a short conversation that they had with their Savior, by the way. Jesus walks with them through their hurt and their confusion until he literally walks them right into Emmaus. And still, they're not done talking. So they ask him to stay, and Jesus does. And then I love what happens next. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. 
Jesus invites them to his table. And I know they're in their own house, it's their table, but really, it's Jesus' table. It's the same table he shared with his disciples at the Last Supper where he broke bread as a symbol of his broken body, broken for them, where he promised life and redemption and solidarity and sadness. It's the same table pictured at the beginning of Jesus' string of parables that we read in chapter 5, that picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, who has reserved us a seat who clothes us in new garments and offers us new wine. And then their eyes were opened. And not only did they see Jesus, they saw something about him that they couldn't see before, that their seat at his table is set, whether they come to it rejoicing or broken or full of praise or full of questions, their seat is prepared for them. When the new wine tastes bad and the old wine is better, it is the risen Jesus who seeks them out and then walks them back to life. Cleopas and the other disciple, they see all of this and they get up and they go at once back to Jerusalem, even though it was evening, even though it was seven miles away. And they find the disciples and they tell them what they've seen and that their seats at Jesus' table are set for them too. And I wonder if this is where some of us find ourselves today, on that long road to Emmaus, wondering if we've put our hope in the wrong places, when our grief is too big, when we ask and God says no, when we can't see how our good plan and his good plan are going to match up. I want to invite you to see that on that road, you're not walking alone. Jesus is walking with you, asking you what things, what are the heavy things, what are the disappointing things? Tell me all about it. Then he offers you back to a seat at his table where there's newness of life. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you that we have never walked alone that in seasons of joy and in seasons of sorrow, you are walking with us. And God, we pray today, especially for those in our church family who feel themselves walking in this season of sorrow and of sadness. God, would they hear the voice of Jesus walking right beside them, asking them what things. God, we pray this week that you would bring us back to your table, that you would seat us there, that we would feel you clothing us in your love and your grace. And God, we just ask that as we receive new life from you, you would help us to extend that life to others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.